Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening to Bleeding Daylight. You'll find links to our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter accounts at bleedingdaylight.net. As you listen to this episode, think about who else would benefit from hearing today's guest and then share the episode with them. When someone we love is suffering, we can often struggle with knowing how to help and how to move forward. Today's guest has been facing that battle for many years. I'll introduce you in just a moment. We all know that the fairy tale dream where everyone lives happily ever after isn't real life. We all face struggles and battles of various sizes, but some people's lives are marked by more suffering than others. For some, life simply doesn't follow the script they've written in their minds. Jim Barnard has written a book titled The Suffering Guy. Using large doses of humour, he walks his readers through the struggle to find hope amidst suffering. Jim joins me on Bleeding Daylight today. Thank you so much for your time. Rodney, thank you. What a great introduction. I really appreciate that. September 2006 was the culmination of a lot of planning and a really exciting time for you. Take me back to what was happening for you at that time. Oh, man. I was madly in love with my then-girlfriend, Alicia. We had dated for a year and a half, and we decided to have a really fast engagement. We were engaged for only 10 weeks, but I had no idea what was coming because I think really... God had a plan. Like he knew what was coming and and we had no idea because three months later, my wife, Alicia became super sick. Like the wheels fell off for her. She couldn't keep any food down. Everything changed. But at that, that, that time building up to our wedding, man, we were excited. We had high hopes and high expectations for what our married life was going to be. It must have been an exciting time as marriages are, and we look forward to the future. But then you say three months later, things started to change. What were the first signs that everything wasn't as it should be? Yeah, it seemed like she had the stomach flu. Just seemed like she couldn't keep any food down. And, you know, maybe in a few days she was going to get over this. Like this wasn't that big of a deal. You know, rub some dirt on it. It's going to be fine. But, you know, it just never went away. She was just vomiting for hours a day. And... We started to like kind of freak out, like what, what, what's causing this? Like, how is this happening? Like, what, this doesn't make any sense. And we started to panic and see as many doctors as we could. And we found this one doctor who was very kind and very understanding. And he said, "Hey, we can we can do some stuff to help you, but we I don't know that we have all the best tests here. So let's send you up to the Mayo Clinic. It's this world renowned clinic in Minnesota." They sent us there totally unprepared for what we were going to be experiencing. Alicia had to spend three months up at this Mayo Clinic, just going through some of the worst tests, like just humiliating, awful, intrusive tests. You you couldn't even get your mind around it. So for three months, she was up there just trying to to suffer through something really tough. And I, I had just taken all of my vacation time for the wedding and the honeymoon. And I, I couldn't be up there all the time. So as a husband, I felt helpless. Like I, I couldn't be there to hold her hand and to support her. We had to enlist some family friends that could go up with her. And 
it was a wild season. I was so unprepared for every part of this. I was probably unprepared for marriage to begin with, you know, but I was not ready for for what was what was coming for us. And we should say, even at this point, because you're describing this illness that your wife is suffering, and yet you've written a book called The Suffering Guy, and some people would yeah. say, well, he's not the one suffering, but so often we don't get to hear the story of those that journey along with those who are going through an illness. And I guess that's part of the reason that you want to tell your story, is that there are many of us that have journeyed alongside someone who's gone through something awful, and sometimes it can feel so hard to not know what to do, not know how to help. I guess that was your experience. That's absolutely correct. You know, like thinking about, you know, books that are out there, there's a lot of books for the people that are going through the actual suffering, like the actual pain. Like there's a lot of books that are written to Alicia and she's read most of them, you know. I couldn't find anyone that was writing to the husband in this scenario, anyone that was writing to the caregiver. It is weird that I call myself the suffering guy. I've watched my wife for the last 15 years go consistently downhill. And she has so much pain. She has so much weird things that are happening inside of her body. I I probably should give some context to to what actually is happening with her. She has this disease called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. If you've ever seen a contortionist, someone who can bend their joints in any direction, They've got that same disease. They've just got it localized in their joints. Her version is localized in her abdomen. So her core organs, her digestive system, there's no muscle tone in there. And so everything's just super loose and not the way it's supposed to be. So she's had hundreds of nights in the hospital, dozens of surgeries, and two near-death experiences. It's been a really hard journey for both of us, obviously her, but me as this helpless husband, like I've felt every ounce of suffering all the way along. We got this diagnosis at the Mayo Clinic and we were then clueless on how to how to handle this. What what do we do? Is there any cure for this thing? And it's obvious that there's not. There's just nothing that they can do to stop this disease from progressing. So was this disease always latent within Alicia or was this something that came on later? Yeah, great question. I, I It definitely was in her. You know, when we were dating, there were some health issues, but we, there was no indication it was going to fall apart as fast as it did, as as bad as it did. We couldn't put all, put all the pieces together. Like she, she had these like little puzzle pieces, but suddenly the puzzle just like jumbled up. It's one of these things where you think there's got to be some kind of cure, even in those early days when you had that terrible, terrible diagnosis, there must have been a sense of, okay, well, we'll do what we can. We'll do everything the medical people tell us to do. We'll do everything that is needed and so that we can get over this. But as you say, this is something for which there is no cure at this point. This is something that you have continued to live with for the last 15 odd years. Was there a time back then that you thought, oh, yeah, this will be over, whether it's months or a couple of years, this will be over? You know, when we were doing the Mayo Clinic thing, we had this like big meeting at the, at the end of the three months where we were going to sit down with the managing physician, and he was going to lay out this plan for what was going to happen and how we were going to treat things and, and what the plan of attack was. 
and we got into this room and, and I was there for that. Like I wasn't going to miss that meeting. So we sit down in this small room, this doctor walks in and, and he says, all right, Alicia, I think you're a ruminator. Alicia, my wife, my sweet wife is so much smarter than me because I had no idea what this guy was talking about. Alicia said, I'm sorry, do you think I'm crazy? And the doctor said, no, I don't think you're crazy, but I, I, th I think that you have some you know, things in your life psychologically that you haven't quite dealt with. And if you got some counseling, all of the physical issues should go away. And Alicia was not willing to accept this. We're sitting in this room and, and she's fighting him and she's asking about all these different tests, this anal rectal manometry, this sweat test, this, all these different things that she had to go through. Like, well, what about this result? What about that? He's like looking at the charts in real time. Like, oh yeah, this, this seems weird. Yeah, I don't know. That's that that is interesting. It's interesting. Well, look, our our time's up here. I have to move on to another patient. If you need a reference to a counselor, please let my office know. We're happy to help you. And I felt so hopeless in that moment. Like I went from this high of of expecting that we were going to get some kind of answer or plan or roadmap for this thing. And then it all got pulled away. Just go see a counselor. Like it, it, it's in your head. And that was crushing to me. It was crushing to me on so many levels because I felt like as a husband, I should have defended her. I should have stood up for her. I should have done something, but I just sat there helpless. And as we got in the car and drove away from Minnesota, I just remember thinking like, gosh, this is all so confusing. And it would really be great if what this doctor said was true. Like if we could just get counseling for this issue, man, maybe, maybe this would all be okay really quick. So we got back home. We lived in St. Louis at the time and we went back to that doctor that sent us up to Mayo. He was excited to hear what happened and we, we told him all about it and we were incredibly fearful that he was going to affirm the same decision that this doctor had, that Alicia was a ruminator that this was a mental or emotional condition. And the doctor's sitting there looking through all these test results and charts and all this stuff that couldn't be done at the local hospital, but was able to be done at Mayo. And he looks up and I feel like I'm going to puke. Like she's the one that is prone to puking, but I feel like I'm going to puke because this moment feels so real. Like I don't want to hope, but this is the only hope I have. Like I need this doctor to have some kind of answer, some kind of plan. And he broke the tension by saying, honey, it's not in your head. It's in your guts. And he was able to lay out a plan that really made a huge difference. He identified that the majority of the disease, the Ehlers-Danlos was located in Alicia's colon. And so they went in and, and took out all but two inches of her colon and for a season, Alicia got better. It, it was great. I, I had my wife back. She could eat. She was active. She didn't have a lot of pain. Like things were so good and so promising. But unfortunately, this disease continued to progress through her digestive system and other organs. And, you know, pretty much since then, there was only one other season where, where she got better. God blessed us with a little boy. And I, I can get emotional about this, that we wanted to be parents so badly, and we had honestly given up on the dream, and God saw to it that she could get pregnant, even when her uterus had failed before. 
it made no sense to me. I was so fearful that I was going to lose Alicia, that I was going to lose this baby. Alicia had another season of amazing health and she got better. And we have this little boy who's now 11 years old and he's amazing. He's, he's the best thing that ever happened to me. As much as the last 15 years has been so hard and, and, and watching her suffer the way she has, it's been uniquely good and God has done absurd things in the midst of it. We never want to diminish anything that Alicia has faced because she is the one who has suffered from this terrible disease. But of course, your book does take us through your story. It's there to help others who are walking alongside people. So what was going on for you at this time? What were the things that, that are happening? Because when someone is ill or there's a serious situation, we can sort of put life on hold for a little while but you can't put life on hold for 15 years. So what's the journey been like for you? Yeah, great question. I, I'll i be honest, like I, I struggled with a lot of depression throughout this entire journey. It's been a part of this that I, I, I wish I could say, oh no, that, that <laughs> that's just a, a bad attitude. That's me being negative. But truly I've, I've, I've carried some real depression in my life. And when Alicia came back from the Mayo Clinic and um, we had this like ethereal thing and was this going to be better? Man, I isolated so much. I just wanted to pull away. I didn't want to share anything with anyone. I was scared. I was fearful. And to me, that's the picture of depression is pulling away and isolating. That's how my depression manifests. What's really amazing is is we were part of a community, a church community that knew us and loved us so well. And they rallied beside us like when we didn't ask them to. It it really feels like what they did was the same thing that Aaron and her did in Exodus 17 by accompanying Moses up the mountain. While the battle is happening down in the valley, they go up the mountain uninvited with Moses. And they stand beside him and hold his arms up until the the battle in the valley is won. Like if they weren't there, Moses' strength wasn't strong enough. Israel was going to fail in, in this battle, but together they were able to stay strong and win this battle. And it's it's the picture of what I've seen the church do in my life. And it's kept me sane. And And frankly, as all of that is unfolding in front of me, I feel like God is telling me, are you paying attention here? Because this is important. This is the church being the church. You need to be a part of this. And I began to feel like maybe God was calling me into ministry, which was asinine to me. Like it made no sense for God to call me into ministry. Alicia had had worked at our church. She was the producer of the weekend service. And as she has had gotten sicker, I had volunteered more and helped more and made more videos and set up more chairs and and did a lot. But I had no ambition or interest in doing ministry because I just think, Rodney, ministry is complicated, right? If we're going to do ministry well, it's got to be complicated. God had already given me a complicated set of circumstances, so I couldn't do it. And, And probably a lot of that was you know, a depressive mindset and not wanting to, to put myself, you know, side by side with people. But over the years, you know, God continued to poke at me and I finally gave up and I was like, all right, Lord, what, where, 
how, answer the questions and I'll do it. I'll, I'll, whatever it is. And I'm so thankful that I did because I've gotten to, to turn around and help other people who are in the midst of an expectation gap, because that's what all of this has been. It's been an expectation gap where my reality has been far from my expectations. It's been full of disappointment, dissatisfaction, distress. Now, as a, as a pastor, I get to turn around and help other people in their own expectation gap, using my own experiences, using my story, using scripture. And it's honestly the, the greatest thing that I've ever done. I'm so thankful that God was pushing me into this. And to answer your question, the, the depression has come and gone over the years. It's, it's really a, a major theme of this book of, of being the suffering guy. And yet you use a lot of humor within the book, don't you? You use humor to be able to tell your story as you talk about that suffering. Humor for us has been the greatest coping mechanism. Uh, it's been the thing that helps us not take ourselves so seriously. When you're facing pain, when you're facing depression, it's easy to just close in and, and take yourself so seriously. But humor is that thing that can disarm you. So we use humor all the time. And so when I was writing this book, I was like, I can't just write a book about suffering. It's got to be a book about not taking ourselves too seriously in the suffering. So all of the reviews that that I've gotten on the book that have said, oh my gosh, I've never laughed so much at a book before, and I can't believe it was a book about suffering. That's like mission accomplished to me. I, that, that, <laughs> that touches my heart to a new level. That calling into ministry that you received, it is so counterintuitive that God would call you into serving others when the world would say, you need to be the one that's being served, especially Alicia needs to be the one that's being served, but you alongside her. And yet I hear this constantly from people who have gone through some deep waters, is that when God calls them to actually serve others out of that depth, things start to change. How soon did things start to change for you when you finally said, okay, God, I get the message, I'll, I'll do something in ministry? Yeah, it took a little bit. I was pretty resistant still, if I'm being honest. We packed up all of our stuff and said goodbye to all of our friends in St. Louis and moved to Denver, Colorado for me to go to seminary. And it, it was incredibly hard. It was me working full time. It was me doing master's level seminary part time. I had a wife who, who couldn't drive and was a 24 hour fall risk. And we had a nine month old baby that couldn't take care of himself. Like, it was an incredibly challenging. It was a juggling act that I, I just, I couldn't handle. And I had so many, I felt like mental breakdowns of, God, I, I can't do this anymore. Or maybe I heard you wrong. Or like, I don't even care. I just, I, I, I need to quit. I don't have what it takes. But over the years, you know, Alicia would always give me the, the encouragement of like, know that God's not fickle. This was going to be hard. We knew it was going to be hard, so we have to stick it out. God's got something for us. And we did stick it out, and I'm, I'm really glad because I transitioned into working in this, in, at some churches. I was an executive producer at a church for a while and then became you know, the adult pastor, the discipleship pastor. I filled a few different roles, but probably when the tide really changed for me was I had always had this almost street cred with with this sick wife narrative. Like people would want to talk to me about that. 
one of the things that why the, the book is titled The Suffering Guy is anytime someone would come into the church and they would reflect some kind of pain or some kind of loss, some grieving in, in their lives, people would be like, oh, you need to meet Jim. He's the suffering guy. Like he, He's the right person to talk to. He's going to help you. And so between the sick wife narrative and this open bout of depression that I, that I walked through with, uh, with my church community, my street cred like went to a new level. People were just coming out of the woodwork, wanting to meet with me, wanting to talk with me, wanting to share with me their own struggles because they felt like maybe somehow, even if it was different, maybe I could understand, maybe I could relate, maybe I could share some wisdom with them. And I started to realize, like, I, I love the church. Like, I, I think the church is such a beautiful place for, for ministry and for community. But I began to realize how much fruit these one-on-one conversations were providing, not just for other people, but also for me. For me to be able to use my story to help other people, it was giving me so much life. So a couple of years ago, just as the p- pandemic was a- a- about to blow up the world, I stepped away from church work to go start a coaching ministry where I would give away coaching to anyone that realizes they're in the midst of an expectation gap. If you're suffering, I want to be a missionary to come walk beside you. I want to be your Aaron or your her and hold your arms up when you're weak or weary. That's truly over the years of seeing this plan that God had had written, it's it's when I began to truly come alive and feel like, oh my gosh, there's a purpose to all this pain. You've mentioned a couple of times those people that come alongside and, and walk that journey with you. How difficult was it when you first moved away to go to seminary to leave that church family behind that had been so supportive in that early time of the the diagnosis and having to live with that? It was painful. It felt unfair. I kind of resented God, if I'm being honest, at that time that he would strip away community from us. We knew no one in Denver. That was the hardest part of my juggling act was we had no community, knew no one. We were so isolated and it, it perpetuated depression. It perpetuated grief. It created every like negative thing and it made it bigger. It, it was so painful. I resented God a little bit and it was something that once I could get honest with God and, you know, share that with him and be like totally transparent and authentic, that's when he started to move and to show me you need people, obviously, but other people need you as well. So give yourself away. And it, it, it really was a, a paradigm shift for me. So often when I talk to people on Bleeding Daylight, we hear about the suffering that they've been through, then the way that God has met them in that suffering and that things have improved. And and none of them say that, you know, life is now perfect, but it is so much better than what they've had Mm -hmm. to walk through. In your case, this continues to go on because Alicia is still not well. What does life look like for you at the moment? You know, I've wrestled with this a lot. People have asked me particular questions about, like, what would you give up to have Alicia be healthy again? And I used to say, oh, anything. I would give up anything. I would, I would, I would trade, like, my most prized possession to, to have Alicia healthy again. I would give up my own life to have her healthy again. But 
I've gotten to a point where if I were offered that deal, if, if, if Jesus came in the form of a burning bush or, or whatever and, and said, all right, here's your chance. You could have Alicia be healthy again, or you can continue to have this ministry where you help people in the midst of suffering. What would you choose? Because it, it almost feels like you can't choose both. I actually don't know if I would take that deal, Rodney. Like I, 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 I really want Alicia to be healthy, but I also recognize how this story of suffering, how all of our stories of suffering make a monstrous difference in people's lives. And, you know, it allows us to get our hands dirty with each other. It's really a profound thing. I think there's a real dynamic of a theology of suffering. And if, if I could give away the ending of the book, I, I, I call myself the suffering guy, but really I, I, I'm a suffering guy. Jesus is the suffering guy. No one has suffered more than he did. I mean, what he endured going to the cross and dying that bloody, gory death, that was unfathomable suffering. And on top of that, he continues to suffer my sin to this day. He is the suffering guy. I realized at some point, uh, there's this great set of verses in Romans 8 that say that we are adopted by God and uh, therefore we are now heirs with Christ. If we just stop there at that point of scripture, I am into that. I want to be an heir with Christ. I want all of that inheritance. Like selfishly, I want all of it. But sadly, the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, provided that we suffer with Christ. And I love the first part of that verse, but I don't love that second part. Like no one wants to suffer. I think 100% of us will suffer at some point, but we all try to fight it. We try to run away from it as fast as we can. But there's a difference between suffering and suffering with Christ learning how to suffer with Christ is the most beautiful thing that we can do. And it's the thing that gives us that full inheritance. My hope for heaven is going to be amazing. Alicia is going to be restored. She's going to be healthy. She's going to be eating all the cheeseburgers, all the racks of ribs. She's going to be feasting. But my hope isn't just in heaven. My hope is in the here and now that I get to suffer with Christ as opposed to just suffering. That, doesn't that sound terrible, just suffering without Christ? It's awful. And yet so many people in our world are in that position where there is suffering, but there is not the hope. And this is part of the, the reason behind writing the book is to show people a way forward to actually find hope amidst the suffering, amidst the mm. struggles. And as you say, it's not been perfected yet. There are still the up days and down days, but mm -hmm. you've started to discover this. How helpful is it for those people that you say you've, you've spoken to one-on-one -on -one when they start to understand that for themselves? Man, when they start to see it and get it, you see fruit blossoming. Like I've always wondered what, what it means to have this, the, the, the fruit of the spirit. I get love, joy, peace, patience, like all of the fruit, like just by name. But what does it really look like? You see these people having spiritual conversations just naturally because it's in them. 
when they were once sharing stories of pain, stories of woe is me, stories that reflect a, a unique level of selfishness, now they're sharing stories of hope. They're sharing stories of this is okay. This isn't what I want it to be, but I'm not losing myself in this. And being able to coach people that are working their way towards that, it's a beautiful process. It, it really is. It's scary for a lot of people because it's scary to hope. The moment you start to hope, it feels like that rug could get pulled out from underneath you. We have assumed expectation gaps that our reality is going to be far from what we hope for. And so many of us choose to opt out when there's an assumed expectation gap ahead of us. But you know, a lot of these people are having the courage to share their story and to, to share it in a way that, that gives a, a beautiful, pure example of hope. It's beautiful, man. I love it. Your book, The Suffering Guy, has been out there for a while. I know that many people have had the opportunity to read it. Your opportunity to sow into people's lives isn't just those that you meet face-to-face or even just through the coaching that you do. It's now through the written word. What have been the responses of people who have been able to read that book? You mentioned some of the reviews of, of people finding a lot of humor in there, a lot of opportunity to laugh in the midst of it. But what has been the overwhelming theme that has come back to you? Oh, man. I, I had a friend who uh, wrote a book several years ago, and, and his encouragement the months leading up to the book releasing, he said, this book is going to have a ministry of its own. It's going to go out and it's going to speak truth to people. Uh, some of those people you'll you'll get some feedback from. You'll get to hear about it. You'll hear their story and, and how it impacted them. But other people won't reach out. You'll have no idea, but it's happening nonetheless. And I have to trust that that's real because there have been enough people that have reached out and said, I recognize how inwardly focused I've gotten in my hurt. I didn't ever stop to think that I could use this hurt for a purpose, that I could uh, share that with other people. I never understood that there was a theology of suffering. I never thought about celebrating in the midst of suffering. Like All of that was, was foreign concepts. Those people shooting me those notes or hitting me up on social or whatever, man, it, it gives me encouragement to continue on this process. Every time I meet with a, a new person where I coach, we start with story. Some people have read the book and so they already know basically the story, but other people haven't. And I just think that story is our greatest tool. It's our greatest tool for evangelism. It's our greatest gift that we can give people. It's just us being authentic. And our authentic selves is what God wants. It's what he desires. It's at the heart of repentance. We can't repent if we aren't truly authentic. So that's that's what I want my ministry to be about. I want this book to go out and, and share that message in, in profound ways. And it's exciting. It really is. I I don't even know how to end that sentence because I, it, like, it makes me so excited to think about what happens. You know, Rodney, the, the other day, I had someone reach out to me who read the book who does not believe in Christ at all. Like he's very spiritual universe kind of thing. And he said, man, when I saw that book, when I saw that title, I knew I needed to read it. There was something compelling me to read it. 
I crushed it in six hours and I just needed to talk to you. So we set up a Zoom. Now we're, we're starting to coach. We are spending time together uh, learning how to overcome expectation gaps. And I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to like just give him a hard sell on Jesus. But if I can help him learn to trust Jesus in the midst of what's going on in his life, just that one person, that's worth it to me. That's incredible. If people are wanting to get hold of the book or to connect with you, where's the easiest place for them to go? Thesufferingguy.com. That is my website where you can uh, learn places to, to buy the book. The, the main marketplace to buy the book is Amazon, but you can see pictures of our journey. You can connect with us. There's a lot of fun stuff on that website, and that would be the place I would love people to go to connect with me. And I will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can jump on there and and grab the the links to your coaching, to your website, to find the book. But Jim, it, it has been a delight to talk to you, to hear some of your story and how God is using the difficult times in your life to actually minister to others. So thank you for being part of Bleeding Daylight. Thank you, Rodney. It really is such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.